This is Phantom Power. Episode 20. What is radio art? Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Phantom Power, the podcast about sound in the arts and humanities, cultures of sound, histories of sound, philosophies of sound. I'm Mac Haygood, and today we're focused on a single question. What is radio art? I don't think it's a particularly common term here in the United States. Uh, even among you know folks who are pretty into sound, we have sound art, and sound installations and field recordings, but those things don't have a very strong presence in American radio. And then on the radio side, uh, we do have people like, you know, the late Joe Frank, who did experimental freeform radio, but that never went by the name of radio art. And by the way, we do have really cool independent and internet-based radio stations. Shouts to Radius in Chicago and and Wave Farm up in upstate New York. But in terms of some kind of radio art tradition, you really have to look to countries like Germany and Australia. And so that's why I invited my guest today, Dr. Colin Black. Colin Black is an internationally acclaimed and award-winning composer, sound artist, and radio artist. His works have been heard on the Australian Broadcasting Corporation, the BBC, and on stations in Germany and New Zealand and South Africa. He has a PhD from the University of Sydney where he wrote his dissertation on radio art and... He also composed the piece called Out of Thin Air, Radio Art Essay Number 1. It's a fantastic experimental audio essay that both explores and exemplifies the possibilities of radio art. So we're going to hear that piece in its 25-minute entirety. But first, I wanted to talk to Colin about his practice as a radio artist and about the differing histories of radio in our countries and how that affects the kinds of sounds we hear over the air. You know, we've, uh, I think you're the third Australian sound artist that we've spoken to. We had uh, Leah Barclay and Lawrence English. Yes. And I, I think there's just a, a really strong tradition of experimental sound in Australia. Would you agree with that? I'd totally agree with that. And I think it comes from uh, 
our background in radio where there was a really strong presence in sound art on our public broadcaster. Every mm. Monday night at nine o'clock, mm. they would broadcast some major work or collection of short works that were always interesting to listen to. The program was called The Listening Room. And it was basically kind of like a room where you listen to anything. And then it had kind of died and came back in a, in a program called Soundproof, where they uh, tried to do a similar sort of thing. And one of the pieces the listening room made was called The Listening Room, where they recorded the sound of the room. <laughs> they, they listened to the room. <laughs> That's very meta. <laughs> yeah, it was a very meta piece at the time. <laughs> it doesn't exist anymore, but this is where I think, you know, like the Australian artists, not the current generation, but, you know, like uh, people that remember that program, it was a real platform for uh, where you could exhibit these sound art pieces nationally. So it went right across the country and it didn't matter where you lived, you could just tune in and listen to this really bizarre collection of sound pieces. Some of them had words and were a bit like radio plays and others had no words at all. Things Change, Things Remain the Same by Rick Rue is created from sampled and processed sounds from the road. Get comfy and settle in for this outback road trip of the mind. And all, all different types of works came out of that, that station. think the historical relationship between government and uh, the radio networks has had an influence on you know what nations have a strong radio art tradition and which ones don't because I think in the United States it's at least it's not a term of art that we hear very frequently yeah I think it's uh, absolutely does like when I interviewed American practitioners they would say it's barely on FM radio. Yeah. And usually you might find it in an art gallery. Right. And I think that comes down to the fact that, you know, if I've got this right, in America, there's no, there was no state owned public broadcaster that was broadcasting right across the United States. You've got PBS, which is privately and publicly funded radio, but it's, uh, NPR, uh, yeah, National N Public NPR. Radio. Yep, and mm -hmm. and NPR, but that's a different kind of beast to a, a radio station that gets a lot of money to reflect the diversity of its 
community and no consequence of any relationship between sponsors and the content of the programs. So in Australia, we had things on the state-owned broadcaster that couldn't be on community stations that were sponsored-based because the sponsors wouldn't sponsor such a thing. Of course. But on the state, on the state-owned um, broadcaster, they gave it space and budget and commissioned artists and got international artists and created a platform. Same thing happened in France and Germany and a lot of European countries where there's a strong tradition of public um, state-owned public broadcasters. Right. You know, I one of the things I wanted to ask you was how do we distinguish between sound art and radio art? That's a good question. What is the difference between sound art and radio art? Um, between 2008 and 2011, I went around the world asking practitioners what they thought radio art was and what they thought sound art was. A lot of them, when I asked what is radio art, they didn't want to answer. <laughs> and it's, it's just like art. When you say, what is art? Art can be anything. Mm. Like is. And same for if we think of radio as an art form rather than, um, you know, a, a media device, then anything is radio art. And one of the themes that came out of my research was that they didn't want to be locked into a definition because by locking the definition down, they were restricting what the art form could be. So the range of art, radio art forms they they spoke about was things that kind of uh, sounded a bit more like radio documentaries to pure soundscape pieces for radio. The Germans have this uh, approach to uh, sound art or radio art for radio where the difference between a radio drama and a sound art piece would be that in a drama it is um, the, the the spoken word narrative drives the, the whole narrative forward, whereas in sound art for radio, all the elements, meaning vocals or narrative, spoken narrative, musical composition and soundscape or sound effects are all equal devices to make the piece and to tell the story. So they have a quite a tradition of making very abstract, sound pieces so um maybe we can talk a little bit about how you make a piece like this can you sort of walk us through the stages oh to make a piece like that or the way i make pieces in general is that i pick a topic i research the topic i read about the topic if i if the topic is about a place then i go to the place and i record as much as i can about the place it's basically in my mind, I'm researching something and instead of writing about it, I write an audio piece about it or a sound art piece. And it's not a literal journalistic approach. It's more of a, it's an abstract approach of how to communicate my findings from that topic. So what you're listening to on the podcast today is my research findings from investigating 
what is radio art and some of the um, protocols of making an audio or sound artwork for radio medium and how that's special or different to other art forms. That's radio artist and composer Colin Black. And in just a moment, we'll hear his work, Out of Thin Air, Radio Art Essay Number 1. Hey, what's up, guys? It's Moloch, the dark god of information capitalism. Moloch, whose eyes are a thousand blind windows. Moloch, whose soul is electricity and banks. Just taking a quick break to remind you guys to rate Phantom Power on iTunes or Apple Podcasts. And even better, write a review of the show. That's what we in the industry call engagement. And it lets Apple know that this podcast rocks. Today we want to give a big old shout out to Steph Sarasco, who wrote an iTunes review called Sound Nerds Unite. Really thoughtful and provocative, she writes. Great podcast for sound nerds. <laughs> Thanks, Steph. So remember, do Mac a solid and leave a review. Who knows, maybe you'll get a shout out from yours truly, Moloch, the dark god of information capitalism. Now back to the show. And now to continue our inquiry into radio art, we present in its entirety a piece that both explores and exemplifies this experimental form. Out of Thin Air, Radio Art Essay Number 1 by Colin Black. But when you put it together and when you use the contemporary ways of doing that, so when you go beyond the use of linguistic meaningfulness of words and you go beyond the classical point of view of music, like acoustical instruments or it should have a melody or what to know, when you come into the regions of soundscape or acousmatic music or whatever type of contemporary way of structuring time with sounds, 
then you come to a specific field of art which you could say is a nice form of autonomous radio art. Tom Rowe, sometimes I'm DJ Dizzy. Like tonight I'll be DJ Dizzy. A lot of what I do is very layered, so there's like many things going on at the same time. And sometimes I'll separate the things and play them into different transmitters and then have different radios around the room so that the sound is uh, you know, it's kind of like 5.1. so they can kind of talk back and forth to so one at either end of the room. Um, or sometimes I'll just do it right next to each other just to get the uh, static and feedback loop going. You know, I'll feed the same thing into the same transmitter or two transmitters and be able to go back and forth on the radio dial between the two things I'm feeding into it. We're in Paris in a community garden close to an old railway which is not in use anymore. I think that you could describe radio art by what it is not in a way. It's not music, it's not documentary, it's not journalism and probably a dozen of other stuff. But on the other way, it could introduce music, documentary techniques, uh, even a journalism approach. Subjectivity to subjectivity. <laughs> Subjectivity to subjectivity. 
subjectivity to subjectivity. Gregory Whitehead. To think about this relationship in space between one's own subjectivity and then the listener, whether it's a collective consciousness, a community, or just the individual listener, you know, subjectivity to subjectivity. But the nature of that relationship can be quite convoluted and quite fascinating, and uh, that, I think, is part of the, the material as well. Götzen Aleppa. In radio play, you have normally three elements. You have a text spoken by actors, you have recorded sounds, and you have music. But music and sound are serving the text. Text first, and music and sound is illustrative. The lovers walk in the forest, and the birds are singing, and the music is playing because they are in love. Cliché. This is uh, an example how music and sound serves the text. In sound art you have exactly the same elements. You have a text, speakers, singers, you have music and you have sound. But they are material in the hands of an organizer, and the organizer is the composer. They are equal. There is not text first and uh, music serving nor text serving to the music. It's neutral, it's material, and the composer decides uh, which balance the elements can have. You can tell a story only by words, or you can tell a story only by music, and you can tell a story only by noises, sounds, recorded sounds. This freedom of semantic. I didn't have to answer all the time the question, what does that mean? I could ask the listener just to travel in my sounds, in my story. And if you hear it, or your friend hears it, you hear two different stories. And you interpret them, you make them in your head yourself. And that's what I do. This freedom of They propose that radio art is nothing more than what artists do with radio, which is kind of simplistic in a way, but when you think about it, it's quite radical. Because um, what artists do with radio is not necessarily what um, radio people want done with radio. Radio people want done with radio what's normally expected of them. Artists don't do expected things. Subjectivity to subjectivity. Five, 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 five,
Restaurant or a gasthaus, as we call it in Vienna, and it's called Winzerkönigin Karin. And it's in the fourth district of Vienna and very close to the broadcasting house. But also there was the dematerialization of art that is uh, um, going away from the object, the saleable object and so on. And that, of course, also made it much easier to move on to the radio and see radio, as many artists did at the time, as a sculptural space. As one artist, actually an Austrian artist, uh, explained it once, he said, he sees that sculptural space defined by all the listeners listening at that moment. And of course, the sculpture only being alive and there while the transmission goes on. Afterwards, it's over. Yeah? And any recording of it is then just a document if it's not part of that sculptural space. Well, I guess radio art, or for me, radio art is always also done, especially also for the radio, also in in the sense radio as, the, as Heidi described it, also like in that extended or expanded version, so not in the broadcasting sense only. And it's always done by artists. And it's for me also opening up, not always, but most of the times as a communication space.
Andreas Hagelüken. First of all, radio art is the future of radio. So, a kind of laboratory wherein different and new forms and unknown forms are developed for radio and for communication systems. That's a very, very main issue of radio art. On the other hand, you might know the definition of Austrian Kunstradio, Heidi Grundmann and Elisabeth Zimmermann. They argue radio art is art on air. But the problem on that, it's true on the one hand. On the other hand, it means that it has to be live produced, so live broadcast. Yeah? And that's a problem because in the German history, for example, in the early 20s or 30s, you have the Hörspiel, the radio drama, and this is pre-produced. So it's not live. So you go into the studio and you produce the radio play, and then you broadcast that. But Hörspiel is one of the most genuine forms of radio art in Germany. The base, the roots of all what has been developed afterwards. Because of that, I don't share the Austrian opinion like that. Yeah. On the third, you have, for example, you have very different kinds of different ways how radio art or how the society or how the radio or the artists found radio art. And for me, one is uh, that Ars Acoustica thing, uh, created at the WDR in Cologne by Klaus Schöning, which in between the pure definitions, what is literature, what is music, what is Hörspiel, that's kind of radio art. So it's a kind of working with acoustical materials inside the communication system or inside the radio and to broadcast acoustical materials via the radio, the media radio. And this is also very close to the definition of radio art, I guess. For example, Australia has its own independent history of radio art. And certainly that's the case in Canada, which is quite distinguished and suppressed. Of course, many of these histories are suppressed by the corporations that should be sustaining them and celebrating them. But in many cases, they're, you know, rather all too successfully erased from public memory.
And in the U.S., that erasure has happened, I think, almost totally. And that's why I haven't really been functioning in the United States context, because there is no really, um, there's no context for the type of radiophonic work that continues to inspire me right now. That's very sad. And then, of course, Europe has its own traditions uh, that go right back to Klebnikov and Marinetti, and they're very much really back in futurism in the early days of the avant-garde. And all of that, I think, is much more inscribed in the practice of current European artists. They're, I mean, they're much more conscious of that history than we are. In, I mean, in North America, there's almost no consciousness that anything has a history. I mean, if, any, if you can find somebody who even knows what Fluxus is, you're lucky. You know, but Fluxus did introduce... In North America, Fluxus does, I think, introduce interesting questions for radio and certainly, uh, you know, Burroughs and so forth. So that whole, you know, those histories that go back to the late 50s and the 60s, those are certainly consequential. I've drawn quite a bit of inspiration from there. But are there distinctions? Absolutely. Very much the same as you would see the same kinds of differences in European, Australian, North America that you would find in painting or in sculpture or even in architecture. Terry Reeb. It's a history that doesn't get conjured enough when we talk about wireless art and, you know, the current fascination with cell phones as mechanism of delivery often gets cast as new, which, in fact, it's anchored to the history of radio. says, oh, we call this art, radio art, maybe because we don't understand it, maybe because it is not journalism, maybe because it is beautiful or aesthetically highly developed. Therefore, we put it into the art category on the radio side. And somehow it seems to me that there's something which doesn't quite connect there.
And that's it for this episode of Phantom Power. Big thanks go out to Colin Black. Out of Thin Air, Radio Art Essay Number 1, previously aired on Resonance FM in London. Thanks to the Dreamlands Commissions for the Radio Arts, which are funded by the Arts Council England and Kent County Council. You can learn more about Phantom Power and find transcripts and links to some of the things we've talked about at phantompod.org. You can also subscribe to our show there or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd love it if you'd rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and tell your friends about us on social media. Today's show featured music by Blue the Fifth. Our intern is Gina Moravec. And Phantom Power is made possible through the generosity of the Miami University Humanities Center, the Robert H. and Nancy J. Blaney Endowment, and the National Endowment for the Humanities. <laughs>